Hi, this is Lindsay Miller, and you're listening to the Arkansas Times Week in Review podcast on Friday, May 11. On this week's episode, we're going to talk about the Democratic primary for the 2nd Congressional District, sovereign immunity in Leslie Rutledge, and the Little Rock mayoral race. <laughs> I'm joined again by Benji Hardy. Hey, Benji. Hello, Lindsay. How are you? Okay. Great. Let's dive this right in. This is my last time before Max gets back. I think Max will be back next week. Okay. You will always be a special guest. And we're soon going to get a third microphone so we can have a three-way. Mm. We can read podcasts. Mm. Okay. If you're up for that kind of thing. <laughs> sure, I'm up for whatever. So I uh, spent the last couple of weeks talking to the four candidates who are running for Congress in central Arkansas and wrote a cover story in this week's Arkansas Times. And for fun, we're going to talk about that. All right. <laughs> so the, the candidates are, as I'm sure many of our listeners know, um, in order of when they got in the race, Paul Spencer, who's a, a teacher and longtime good government activist. He's a teacher at, at Catholic High School. Gwen Combs, also a teacher and activist who is uh, a more recent entrant into politics. Where does she teach? She teaches at Stevens Element Elementary. She's uh, in gifted education. She's been all over the district. She's taught for 11 years, 10 of which in the, the Little Rock School District. And uh, Clark Tucker, who's state representative, District 35, I think. That's right. In the Heights, um, who sort of seen as a rising star in democratic politics and is the clear front runner in this election. And then Jonathan Dunkley, who's director of operations at the Clinton School, um, who has done a lot of things but not been active in politics recently. So in some ways, the race breaks down in, in the, the kind of Clinton-Sanders divide that we've seen dominating democratic politics since the election. Um, the Tucker is seen by a lot of folks as the more moderate, certainly establishment candidate. The Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee recruited him to jump into the race. Um, certainly among uh, a chunk of the Democratic Party, the DCCC is viewed with some skepticism. It's been heavy-handed in its preference for candidates in other races. Right. Um, Steny Hoyer, uh, who's one of the, the top Democrats in Congress, was caught on tape urging uh, a Democrat out of a race in Colorado. I think so, right. I, yeah. Um, and there have been other instances where they have, have not uh, behaved diplomatically, to say the least. Yeah. And so for Spencer, Dunkley, and Combs, that Tucker was recruited by the DCCC and has accepted their help um, is a disqualifying uh, factor. <laughs> uh, I think that probably does not represent, that's a little too into the weeds for your average voter who, who probably barely even knows what the DCCC is. Um, and Tucker takes great pains to not talk about his affiliation with DCCC. I mean, yeah. he, I don't think his money, I mean, they've, I'm sure, have been helpful and will be helpful if he wins this race, but um, 
I suspect that Clark Tucker has a, a pretty solid Rolodex of folks that he can call to to raise money, and uh, he would with or without the DCCC. Yeah, you know, I thought that John Roman had a pretty good column on that this week. Uh, I don't remember whether it was today or before, but you know, sort of pointing out this this narrative that circulates among the progressive wing of the party um, of of that. Or I should really say, I guess, more the Sanders wing, like the insurgents, you know, the folks that, that want to take on the Democratic establishment, um, which is that um, you have these sort of homegrown gra- grassroots candidates that are authentic, and then you have the D-trip swooping in and, and sprinkling money on anointing some establishment candidate who they believe it is more centrist and therefore, you know, more viable in, in red districts like the second congressional district in Arkansas. Um, but that narrative, you know, is often, I mean, it's a really simplistic one and, and it doesn't really necessarily apply here. I mean, I mean, in some ways it does, because if you had to say who's the more moderate and who's the more establishment candidate, there's no doubt that it's Tucker in this race. But, um, I mean, he also has genuine sort of homegrown credibility. I mean, he's not He's not from out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, he's, he's a two-term uh, state representative who, you know, was in the decided minority throughout his time in the legislature and still managed to, to do some things that were pretty significant. I mean, this the criminal justice package that he co-sponsored along with Jeremy Hutchinson, and uh, he led a task force that met for a year or so, maybe longer, that led up to the... The, this big omnibus bill was, you know, re- remains to be seen, but very substantial, the biggest criminal justice package that we've had in years. And and Tucker's part especially uh, was, will be beneficial, I think, and that was the creation of these crisis stabilization units that are soon to be popping up and already have in a few places across the state where people who are amid behavioral health episodes like you know, because they're off their meds or um, I think they could be on drugs, you know, who are only causing problems because there's something going wrong with them, not because they're trying to commit a crime, uh, can go and calm down and not go to jail where, you know, bad things could happen to them and people around them, including the the correction or police officer. So anyway, mm-hmm. I think that that's a a big thing that he deserves credit for. Um, and, you know, he is more moderate, but the main, the main policy uh, issue that the, the three others hit him on is that he's not for single-payer insurance, not for Medicare for All, which is something that Sanders is, has uh, trumpeted. Tucker's for something called Medicare X that Tim Kaine and somebody else in the Senate have pump that's um, more of a gradual move in that direction where you would have Medicare as a have the public option basically Medicare would be available to people who wanted it but if you liked your health plan you could stay in it uh-huh. um, yeah the Medicare for all thing has become this really peculiar litmus test because it's such <laughs> I mean the med- the actual proposal that is in Congress from Bernie Sanders is you know it's 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 uh, it's a, a policy proposal that I mean uh, it's one among many different ways to get to this goal of universal coverage, um, and it it's strange to me that in you know in, in in these congressional races that 
something that is, you know, one of the most complicated pieces of, of public policy out there, healthcare, is reduced to this, you know, the single point of are you for Medicare for all or not, which is almost meaningless when you really get down to it. Right. Um, Dunkley, Combs, and Spencer, pretty similar on policy. I mean, they, they all admire Sanders. Um, they certainly come at it from a different, different perspectives. Combs' pitch is really that I'm a normal person. You know, I, I grew up poor, had a blue-collar life, you know, I'm still lower middle class. She's a veteran. Um, I don't think you mentioned the point, her sort of point of entry into politics recently. Right, so you, she organized the Women's March after the election of yeah. uh, Donald Trump. Which really, I think it's hard to, I mean, it, it was an enormous moment, I mean, I, at the time, I think, for progressives in this area, I mean, immediately after the election and, you know, people feeling very demoralized and just this this sort of stunning turnout um, at the state capitol um, really, I mean, I think gave a sense of like, this is, um, even in a, in a red state, there's um, going to be sustained opposition to um, to this sort of wave of, of Republican uh, elections nationally. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, she's, again, she's a veteran, a teacher. She talks about being a woman and understanding that. She's, um, you know, she's, she's pro-choice. She wants to repeal the Hyde Amendment. Um, that, she says, separates her from Spencer, who, as a Catholic, is personally pro-life, says he has no interest in... Um, in changing the law, Roe versus Wade, you know, that's established, um, doesn't want to keep Medicaid funding from Planned Parenthood, um, it does want to see abortion cap somewhere around viability, uh, which of course is a, a political issue as much as it is a, a, a medical or scientific issue as, as we know in Arkansas, right. uh, where viability is been set at, at 20 weeks, although uh, scientists and, and doctors put it more at 24 to 28 weeks. Anyway, um, Spencer has more policy outlines than anyone. He, you go to his website, you can read 2,000 words on everything he wants to do, and, and you know, I, I think most progressives would celebrate the policies that he's for. He wants to um, you know, aside from single payer, he wants to move to to postal banking, where you'd have the post office act as a bank for the millions of people who are unbanked, don't have enough money to access a normal bank. He wants to expand rural broadband, on and on and on. Um, you know, he the the funny thing that you mentioned Brummett earlier. Brummett is constantly discounting Spencer for not having any money. He's got quite a bit of money. I mean, he he raised quarter million dollars in the in the um, first quarter and interestingly pretty much all of that came from this group Tech Solidarity um, that start, started by uh, tech workers mostly in Silicon Valley but also in Massachusetts and elsewhere who I guess want to be more engaged in, in politics and created this thing called the Great Slate where they picked 10 progressive candidates from rural districts who um, 
aren't being supported by national Democrats, and then people just sort of give <laughs> to all those. Yeah. So I th- that's kind of fascinating. It is. It is. Yeah. Um, and and then lastly, I'm I'm rambling a bit. I know Dunkley, um, his big policy thing that distinguishes him from others is he wants to pay for things by legalizing cannabis federally uh, and then taxing it uh, at a moderate rate, which, you know, is I, I personally think is a sensible policy proposal, but also might be disqualifying for a lot of people just because it's so unlikely to happen. And, um, you know, some people may see that as a, a not very serious idea. Sure. So um, primaries on May 22nd? Right. Early voting has started. Primaries on May 22nd. There was a poll by Top Business and Hendricks College that came out uh, last week. And what was it? Tucker had 36% or so. I think higher than that, maybe. I I could be wrong. But there were a number of undecideds. Um, But, I mean, the crucial threshold for him is going to be whether he can get a majority. Cross 50 and, and avoid a runoff. Spencer thinks that if he gets to a runoff, he can win. Um, we shall see. We shall. Okay, moving on to the next topic. This was uh, a big week for attorney Leslie Rutledge. She rejected uh, the 69th ballot initiative um, <laughs> of the season. Maybe I mean she may have re- rejected another one today that we qu- we haven't heard about yet. And uh, she was sued by a a group that's hoping to put a measure on the ballot that would clarify the sovereign immunity issue that we've talked about quite a bit here, that uh, that's the notion that the state can't be sued under any circumstances. Um, the Supreme Court for years had interpreted uh, there to be exceptions to that, but earlier this year ruled that no, there are not, or at least so we think that's what they ruled. Um, so. This group is trying to, to put a, a ballot measure before voters that would um, allow the state to be sued when the legislature says that it can. And they uh, are trying to compel Leslie Rutledge to testify in that case. It's before who else but Circuit Judge Wendell Griffin. <laughs> so, uh, anyway. Yeah, how, how does that happen exactly? Well, it's random. <laughs> But all, all of it, it just keeps, all the exciting cases just keep coming up, Judge Griffin. Uh, there, there was another, uh, there have been two, so there was the, uh, the Andrews case that was the seminal sovereign immunity case, and then there was uh, another one that came several weeks ago, and, and then uh, there was a, a fairly substantial one that you covered this week. Right, yeah, and, and, and we'll loop back around to Leslie Rutledge in a second, but let's let's take a, a, a detour into sovereign immunity uh, for just a minute. So, um, right, as you said, you know, so so there's a, the whole question here is, can the state be sued? Um, there's a provision in the state constitution which says pretty black and white, it can't be sued. It says the state shall not be made a defendant um, in any of her courts. Um and um, the question is exactly, well, what does that mean? Does it, so in, in January, the Supreme Court um, made the decision in this case called Andrews, um, in which it decided that under, well, in that case, someone was suing under the Minimum Wage Act, saying that 
uh, a community college owed uh, him, I believe, uh, overtime pay and was not paying. And um, within the Minimum Wage Act, passed by the state legislature, there is a, a provision which waives sovereign immunity for the purposes of that law. You know, it explicitly said that that um, a, a citizen could sue the state for violations of the Minimum Wage Act. Well, the Supreme Court decided in, in this Andrews case in January that no, it can't because the Constitution supersedes anything that the legislature passes. So it said the Constitution says the state shall not be sued, therefore you, you the legislature, cannot waive that right. Um, the state simply can't be sued. And so, um, so it struck down that portion of, of the Minimum Wage Act, essentially. But in doing so, you know, it has these much broader ramifications for like, well, anytime the legislature waives uh, sovereign immunity, that is, I suppose, invalid now. Well, so the case that was before the court this week involved also the Minimum Wage Act. And in, you know, uh, in terms of the law, it's pretty clear because the court already decided in Andrews that that um, the minimum that sovereign immunity can't be waived in, in, in this particular statute. So... Um, this was a case, however, that had been li- has been litigated for a while. It um, it was also, uh, I believe, it was also in Judge Griffin's court, and it went made its way to the Supreme Court on a, on this certification of, of class issue, and they kicked it back down to the lower court. And um, while all that was going on, um, recently the sovereign immunity decision came down. So so it's clear that that um, on on the sort of law alone that. Uh, that sovereign immunity applies in this case. But because the case, the, the state didn't claim that as a defense initially, the question is whether it applies in this particular case. Oh. So the reason why this matters is because it has implications for, again, just how broad the, the, the Supreme Court is going to, to take this new interpretation of the sovereign immunity provision um, in terms of like when the state can use it as a defense. Um, and the, the, the funny thing here, like what this has to do with Leslie Rutledge and what the Attorney General's office is, so the Attorney General is, is, is arguing it before the, the Supreme Court yesterday. and One of her deputies. One of her, right. Not, not, not Rutledge herself, but a, a Assistant Attorney General, Jennifer Merritt. And um, the, by the way, the agency in question is the Department of Veterans Affairs. Um, there's these two employees that, that say they were, they were basically not compensated for lunch breaks and, and other, other overtime. And um, and so the this you know uh, attorney general's office um, attorney is 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 arguing before the 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 justices why uh, they should not allow this to proceed. And wasn't this in, in response to Chief Justice Dan Kemp uh, asking uh, about total <laughs> a totalitarian? Right. Well, so so the funny thing is that that I mean. So if you're if you're an attorney for the for the state, you know you're looking at the sovereign immunity decision as like, well, why would I not uh, argue this whenever I can to say that sorry, you just can't sue us. We're the we're the state of Arkansas, and we're we're immune from lawsuit. So, um, but it's it's sort of funny to watch the arguments that they make because they somewhat tiptoe around exactly how far they they want to go, but they also want to leave the door open to arguing in future cases exactly what sovereign immunity covers. So, so yeah, as you just said, Chief Justice Dan Kemp said something about, uh, he said, well, if you interpret this as broadly as you're suggesting, what's to prevent the state of Arkansas from becoming a totalitarian state like North Korea? His words. 
Um, and I mean, in other words, like if you say that the state is is can never be challenged on anything, then what rights do any citizens have, really? Um, I mean, we can say they have rights, but if they don't have a venue in which to challenge, you know, to litigate those rights, then then how do you? Uh, I mean, how do you have any check on state authority? Sure. And her response was in part, well, um, the, the people can change the Constitution if they wish. Um, there's an avenue to do that. And sure, we, the people can change, uh, could, could amend that article of the Constitution that says the state shall not be sued. But the irony here <laughs> is that um, Attorney General Leslie Rutledge is denying these ballot initiatives, one of which is specifically trying to do just that, to amend the provision about sovereign immunity. And she is being sued on that issue. Her defense on that issue is that um, it's the attorney general's right to do so. You know, it's up entirely up to her. It's, it's entirely within her discretion about which ballot initiative she certifies or not. So in one case, you have um, the attorney general's office arguing, well, sovereign immunity is not really as you know, as big a deal as we think because that the Constitution can still be amended. On the other hand, you have the, the same office making the argument that um, the Attorney General has a, essentially unlimited privilege to deny any ballot initiative, any attempt to amend that Constitution that she wishes. Yeah, uh, David Ramsey has a, a long post on this that we would commend to you. Yeah, more, more coherent than my explanation. No, no, that was, that was a good Cliff Notes version. Let's let's take a quick break and, and plug our uh, fellow podcasters. This week, you can check out No Small Talk, an entertainment podcast hosted by Stephanie Smittle and Omaya Jones, featuring our former colleague Brian Motes and his wife Meredith Martin Motes. No, I didn't know that. And uh, Raw Howard. Um, I'm not sure what Brian and Meredith are talking about. Raw Howard talks about the Maker Fest that's happening in North Little Rock where he will be performing on Saturday. And then from the conversation hosted by Matt Price, he's got AptG CEO and founder Justin George talking about one of uh, Little Rock's successful, most successful tech startups. And then Rock the Culture with hosts Antoine Phillips and Representative Charles Blake. They uh, talk about the news of the week and interview Brian Stewart, who's founder of B-Level Entertainment, and talk uh, all about what's lacking in terms of uh, culture that appeals to, to black young folks. And I was really struck by something they said, um, especially in comparison to columns that Rex Nelson has been writing in the Democrat Gazette lately about what's missing from Litterac. Uh Usually, to him, it's control of vagrants and uh, more things going on in Main Street and, and some buildings that are uh, in poor shape being cleaned up. What they said is, if you are a mayoral candidate, and this is Phillips and Blake, the hosts of Rock of the Culture, if you're a mayoral candidate you don't have a plan to, to do something, Roosevelt south of the city to encourage development and bring new entertainment options and all sorts of things, then we don't want to talk to you. I love that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's true. And, um, uh, you know, they uh, – what's the what's the breakdown in Little Rock? Not that uh, black voters vote monolithically, but, uh, you know, we're nearly 
majority black, just slightly under, we're majority minority, and and that majority lives um, in large part in that area. So, right, something to follow. Check out those podcasts; they're all all, all great. Give you a much different flavor than what we're bringing here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what flavor is that exactly? <laughs> what flavor are we bringing? Yeah, uh, we're. we're it, it, let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so finally, mayoral candidates, Little Rock May- Mayor Mark Stodola said this week he will not seek re-election, citing a serious health diagnosis um, of one of his family members. So that uh, upsets the race in some ways. I, I think a-, a lot of people had counted the mayor out in some ways and thought that he uh, didn't have much of a shot going forward. Um, I-, I don't. I don't. That's not to say that this is anything other than what he says that it is um, but you know he's, he certainly would have gotten votes and and would have if if that those precaution prognosticators are right he, he still would have gotten votes and it would have figured into the race and maybe led to a runoff now you've got uh, work Saban and Frank Scott who are still officially just exploring but uh, certainly will formally announce I think June 1st is is when the the startup time is, uh, but as soon as Stodola made that announcement, we heard from uh, former Little Rock School District Superintendent Baker Curris, who said that he was thinking hard about it, mm-hmm. and then uh, local activist uh, Reverend Benny Johnson, who's the founder of Arkansas Stop the Violence, um, a retired Little Rock School District employee and um, city activist uh, who's African American. Um, yeah, so it will be... And Johnson said he's also considering... Right, sorry, yeah. He said that he, he'd heard from a lot of folks who said that he should enter and that... Though, though of course, I mean, on paper, Scott and Saban are also just considering it. Sure, yeah. Kara uh, said he'd decide before June 1st. Johnson said he didn't know. Um, Lance Hines and Dean Kapiris, have, our names have been rumored. I think Hines told the Democratic Gazette that he was not running. Right. I don't know about Kapiris. So, um, do you have any thoughts on that? No, none. <laughs> well, that's that. That's really all. Well, we that's have. all we have for today. Yeah. <laughs> um. I. Yeah. I mean. Uh. I don't know. Other than to say that. I mean. I think it's exciting that Stodel is out of the race. I mean, not because. Um, I, I say that with no like malice or ill will I mean, towards condolences Mark to, Right, certainly. Yeah, excuse me. Uh, condolences certainly to his family. But um, I uh, exciting just because I mean I think um, a lot of folks I know at least I mean folks my age certainly you know feel like Mark Sotol has been around for a very long time. Like it's whatever happens in the city, we really need new leadership. It's time for just time for a new mayor. Um, and uh, just the thought of uh, yet another Mark Sotola term seems sort of wearisome. Um, I mean, all just kind of even policy questions aside, like um, there's a sense in many ways that Little Rock just is in, in need of, of, of some really bold leadership, I think. And, um, and now it can, all, it can be all about vision for the future. Right, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, you know, it, it makes the race, I think, more exciting just to, to have it wide open like this um 
you know, in, in terms of gaming out, like the consequences of, of say, Baker Curris getting into the race, um, I, I don't know. You know, I mean, I think that that probably the same folks that are excited about Warwick Sabin are 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 probably excited about Baker Curris. Um, I think that Curris can probably also pull from, you know, a certain Chamber of Commerce set that maybe Sabin plays a bit weaker with, but I'm not really sure. Um, Curris, moderate Republican. I, I don't know what his party affiliation is. I mean, you know, he, he the, the season has got to be remembered um, in the eyes of a lot of voters for his fairly short stint at heading the Little Rock School District. Um, though there, too, I mean, that it's sort of a, an unusual record, like, because um, in some ways he was seen as um, by some by some activists, um, especially in the black community, is when he was first hired is like, well, you know, this is. Um, this is he's the sort of face of the state takeover, and then, at not you know less than a year later, he kind of became this this populist hero when he uh, forcefully spoke out against charter school expansion, and then was subsequently terminated by the education commissioner. Uh, widely perceived that's why he was fired, and um, and so you know he he it kind of built up his cred in the I think the the progressive community in Little Rock in a way that he otherwise wouldn't have. Um, yeah. What about you? What do you think? You said it all. <laughs> Let's leave it there and move on to endorsements. Okay. What do you got this week? Uh, well, um, let's see. I have a couple of things. Um, so, um, first off, this nonprofit I work with, El Zocalo Immigrant Resource Center, is having an event tomorrow, Saturday, at the Bernice Garden. Um, on South Main Street, I believe it's from six to nine. Um, we call it Tacos and Tiangis. Tiangi is uh, a, a market. Um, so the theme is that we have both food from um, from uh, local folks, um, vendors, and then we have crafts and, and homemade goods for sale uh, just in time for Mother's Day. Um, Come on out, um, great food. Uh, we'll have live music too. And or will you be performing? Um, p perhaps. Well, I won't disclose that. Um, let's see. Another thing I wanted to m really quickly mention is um, some news that just like some national news that's gotten weirdly buried considering how insane it is in the flurry of international stuff this week um, is the resignation of New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman on these just truly incredible um, assault charges by a number of women we say that he physically assaulted them repeatedly. Um, and I just wanted to suggest that people read that story in The New Yorker by Ronan Farrow and I think Jane Mayer. Um, I mean, you've probably all heard about it, but the story itself is like one of the most incredible pieces of reporting I think I've ever read. It's just just um, bizarre, just absolutely bizarre. And um, I, the fact that you have this top Democrat who's been so outspoken about these, these women's issues who him who has sponsored legislation ostensibly to protect women from domestic violence who has been accused of many of the same things that he has been speaking out against um should really make everybody sort of talk, stop and take stock i suppose but check yeah. that out okay uh, i'm going to endorse another podcast it's uh, new ish i think from the new york times it's called caliphate oh yeah and it's quite good it's uh it's by Rachmini uh, Kalamaki, who's the Times star reporter on the ISIS beat. 
terrorism beat. Um, there's just a really charismatic figure. She's she, she did several great interviews with the podcast Long Form, which I really like. Um, this I think there've only been three episodes, maybe four. I'm, I'm only halfway in, and so far it's all about um, background on covering ISIS and what that what that's like. But especially this long interview with a Canadian who, um, you know, had a very moderate upbringing and was radicalized, joined ISIS, and then left. So there's a, a long interview with him that's spread out with a lot of a lot of digressions into um, sort of pullbacks into the broader picture of what's going on with ISIS and their methods and history. Really well done. Check it out. Yeah, I've heard that uh, advertised on the daily, and I've been meaning to, to, to listen. It's a, they're pretty short, so you can you could go through them quickly. Thanks for listening. Subscribe via iTunes and and check out our other podcasts too, uh, and give them ratings and reviews, and tell your friends and do all that. Thanks, thanks for filling in, Benji. Hey, thanks for having me, Lindsay. We'll have you back, please. podcast you just heard was recorded with anchor if you want to make your own download the android or ios app completely free from anchor.fm slash podcast that's anchor.fm slash podcast